One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One Aslan ring to rule them all. Lion. One the ring to lion. find them. The great lion. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. Books from Earth, a podcast. Relive your favorite books of fantasy, sci-fi, and apocalyptic stories. Yes, there are lots of spoilers. The spoiling is constant. Yes, there can be adult content. We are adults making content. Spoilers, adult content, books from Earth. Time to relive a favorite book. Today's Books from Earth podcast episode features a lovely book, Emily St. John Landell's Station Eleven. This post-apocalyptic jewel of a story was published in 2014 and won a bunch of awards, made it into numerous bestseller lists, and was nominated for the National Book Award. Station Eleven is available in 31 languages. It also could become a movie or TV anytime. A well-known producer named Scott Steindorf has achieved the rights. A little bit about Emily St. John Mandel. She was born in 1979 in Canada. Notably for this story, she was born and lived on Denman Island off the west coast of British Columbia. Denman Island has a little over 1,000 year-long residents. Also notable for this story, she studied contemporary dance at the School of Toronto Dance Theatre. As of publishing of this podcast episode, she resides in New York City with her husband and daughter. She's also a staff writer for The Millions, an online magazine offering coverage on books, art, and culture. You can found, find out more about the author on her website, www.emilymandel.com. Today, I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcasters, Lou, Maureen, and Jack. Jason helping us on the tech. Jack, what's this book about? All right, so I brought this book to you guys. I'm a huge post-apocalyptic fan, and I like all the kinds of post-apocalyptic. I like post-nuclear. I like plague. I like computers taking over. I like it all. This one is a plague. You know, a plague causes the fall of mankind on a snowy night a few days before the Georgia flu, it's called, which is a modern-day plague, sweeps the land, killing 99% of the population. One of our characters, Arthur Leander, who is a one-time A-list actor, kind of a little bit of a has-been, dies of a heart attack on stage while performing King Lear. The stories that unfold have him at the center, and it plays through the lives of two of his ex-wives, his son, his best friend, a guy that tried to save his life, and Kirsten, a young actress in the production of King Lear. And it's their stories, how they weave, and he's kind of at the center. The plot skips him back, back and forth between the pre-plague era, the actual fall of humanity, and the post-apocalyptic world, and it interweaves the character stories. This is more literature-esque, and there's a lot that the author played with a lot of great themes, death, memory, regret, survival, religion, family, luck. The biggest two themes that that Emily St. John Mandel explores are the feeling of isolation with like a longing to connect and the idea that survival is insufficient, which in true sci-fi form is a line that the characters in the movie stole from Star Trek Voyager, the movie. So totally, I thought it was a great novel. I brought it to the group. And I hope you guys liked it. I certainly did. And 
I, I want to do a deep dive on the themes right away, because for me, this book had a bunch of cool themes, is interweaving and related. There's such a rich tapestry of a novel that kind of had a fairly straightforward, you know, main plot line, I thought, but it just made it so colorful to have so much that she was just able to work into it. So, Jack, you brought the idea that survival is insufficient. What does everybody else think? Is this a theme in this book? And what did it mean to you? Definitely. I'll start, I guess. I, I like that because that, I chose that as a theme. The survival is insufficient because, you know, and isolation, too. It's like one of my favorite characters was Jeevan, you know, and he was like, you were introduced to him so early, you know, you know, and him finding, you know, finding out what's going on with the Georgia flu and then finding his brother in his apartment. And then they're there. They just like are stuck there for so long. And one of the things that kind of I forgot how long they they got stuck there for. But it was just like just them two. I thought that was, you know, that survival was is, is insufficient. It was like that was, you know, so clear to me. You know what I mean? And I, I really thought that was, you know, one of the biggest things throughout the whole book. You know, you can you can see that. That's my little theme. So was that was that your favorite theme? Luke? That was my favorite theme because you just can't survive. You know, it's like everybody's gone, and you just can't do it by yourself. You just can't. You know, for him to, when he leaves the apartment, you know, it's like, you know, he just goes searching for other people. It's not that he's going to, I mean, he had the perfect place to survive, but he's in search of others. Well, I mean, I I wanted to pick up on what Lou said about Jeevan, who did have this perfect setup in this apartment and, you know, would have been able to survive there. It was sufficient for survival. But survival wasn't enough. And so, yeah, he went out into the, this post-apocalyptic world, vulnerable, at risk, because he, he, he was called to something else, something more than just survival. And it's all throughout the novel. You have one guy creating a museum. Why create a, a museum? You gotta go out and hunt and gather food and get shelter and take care of your clothing. But he's doing a museum. You have a, a traveling troupe of performers who are risking their lives. They don't have the safety of a village or of anything, and they're going out on the road to carry music and theater. It's feeding something else, you know, something else not that's beyond survival that people need. You have uh, a comic book that Kirsten holds on to that has so much meaning to her. But it does, and she takes up space in her backpack, which is very limited space. You gotta have all the survival stuff in your backpack, but she holds on to this comic book. So there's, we see the characters in these stories trying to get meaning beyond just what they need to do to survive. It reminds me of a book I read a long time ago by Viktor Frankl called Man's, uh, Search, Man's for Search for Meaning about World War II concentration camp people and he observed as a fellow, you know, as a survivor, he observed that the folks who had a, seemed to have a better chance of survival or of at least enduring that impossible and unbearable situation 
with some sort of positivity were the ones who had relationships, sought relationship, and tried to serve others. And and they these these people in the concentration camps would go outside of what they might need to immediately do to just survive another minute, another hour in such a horrible place. And so we see that kind of in this in this book, people out there trying to find meaning and bring meaning and uh, go beyond just the animal need to survive and do something human. One of the things that I liked the most was when they got the newspapers, when um, Clark was talking about the um, traitor coming down and bringing in the three newspapers, because it was just, it had that aspect of humanity about it, but it also, it had that, it had the little sections that was like, this is the barter section, this is what people are looking for, this is what people have to give, and it just, it had that wonderful sense of community that... And I like I felt the character's excitement, you know, as they as like I felt Clark's excitement as he got the newspapers and how like they put them in the museum and everybody's coming by to come and take a look at these newspapers. So that that sense of connection, you know, and again, with the theme of isolation and how important it is to live. And yeah, there is this there is that theme of isolation throughout the story. and. In this post-apocalyptic world, there's like little villages and that survivors kind of coalesced in, in places and they're not connected very much at all. But that newspaper kind of comes along and starts starts allowing folks to know what's happening in other villages and so forth. And, and it's very thrilling to the people who get to experience it. So for me, the theme that was the, that resonated the most was the isolation. And if you think about, like, as I read it, I'm like, I didn't know she was actually from that island, but there's that island off the coast of, of British Columbia. You're alone there. Then you go to the big city in Canada, Montreal or Toronto, sorry, Toronto. And then you go to New York, you go to LA and you're back to Toronto and you're at, you're at sea. And then there's the image of, the air, there's an airplane ride early in Kirsten's story where she looks out the window and it's just islands of lights with darkness around them. And then Dr. Eleven lives on a, on a moon, which is a satellite out by itself that's filled with islands, right? And it's all separation. It's all, and all, and the, 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 character of Arthur, right? Totally superficially, for the most part, looking for some kind of connection and not finding it. Finding temporary connection until his attention gets distracted by the next shiny object. Jivan, even he 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 starts off as a, a photographer for like I'm picturing like whatever the trashiest version of like Us Weekly or TMZ is. <laughs> yeah. Right? But he's on the other side of the camera and the subject is not. Right? And he and when he tries to save Arthur's life and fails, it doesn't matter that he failed. It matters that he connected. Right? And he has that moment of connecting, you know, right in the beginning. And then of course he loses it because he's then he's back on another island 
up in the top of the high rise, right, with his brother. So to me, that was the biggest theme in, in the post-apocalyptic literature or books or whatever you want to call it. It's always that that's a common theme. But this book did such a fun, good job of, you know, challenging the reader and making it fun at the same time of, of toying with all those ideas. I did not go read anything about King Lear. I feel like there's probably some stuff I've just left on the table there, but I'm sure there's, there's similar themes there too. Can I add one more thing? Sure. To that. So another thing, it's actually interesting. It was interesting to me because the primary antagonist, the prophet and Kirsten had something that they could have connected over that may have changed both of their paths. And what I, one of the things that, that the author purposefully left ambiguous was whether or not she ever found out if about her connection to the prophet. But what was actually clear was that he did not find out his connection to her. And that was, it, it would have made it, it would have made it interesting, especially with um, the theme. Cause I thought there was also the theme of everything happens for a reason. And the isolation that those two had, despite the fact that they had this intense connection with each other that they did not know about, they both had this man in their life who was primary in them growing up. And then they go and they have like this, he dies without knowing about it and she lives whether or not she knows about it. Does that tie into everything happens for a reason? So Arthur, it might be helpful just to go through the, the main characters. Arthur had an impact on Kirsten because he was, in my view, like an unknowable star, right? And bigger than life. Arthur had an impact on Jivan in a couple different ways. One is the subject matter of his work, which was, you know, paparazzi. And then the other as trying to save his life. Miranda, he had this, this connection with Miranda because they were both from the, an island. So they were both started in the land of isolation. And then at least for a little while, they could be a, a kind of a port in the storm for each other. And then for Clark, when they were younger, they just had that, you know, they were chumps. Then there's that moment where they're in a restaurant together and Arthur starts performing. And at that point, it's that superficiality that Arthur had. Like, if all these characters are the satellites, you know, rotating around, spinning around the sun, it's like the most superficial sun ever. And they, and he, even his son is on the way to see him. And they don't connect. Kirsten and his son don't connect. And neither he doesn't his son doesn't connect with his father either. Right? So there's a lot of that and she just doled out very small baby spoonfuls of connection just to keep us, you know, coming back for more. Yeah, I really enjoyed how she juxtaposed the pre plague world to the post plague world and you know, I found myself liking the post-plague world more, <laughs> you know, I mean, minus the prophet, right? But 
in the post-plague world, there was stillness, there was quiet, there wasn't a bunch of running around, there wasn't a bunch of things to do, there wasn't busyness. And there, there is a small part of the novel that takes a little rabbit hole into what it was like for people to have these busy, busy lives. Mm-hmm. And here in the post-plague world, you had this stillness and quiet. And when connections were made, they felt so real and genuine, like the connection amongst the troupe of actors and performers and musicians who are traveling. And then the connections that are made amongst the villages because of the newspaper. And the connections that are made over the museum. So to me, like a background theme and sort of the flavor or taste I take away from this book is one of quiet and stillness where out of that there, there comes something more genuine, something more essential. And what is genuine and essential is not just surviving because unlike a lot of post apocalyptic novels, the cause of the apocalypse is gone. You know, there aren't a bunch yeah. of robots going around killing, trying to kill the humans or vampires eating them. It's gone. And so now humanity is experiencing, you know, a time that it hasn't gotten to experience for a millennium. Even to highlight this, I think the author does something very extraordinary. She has an opportunity early on in the book to set up a romance or a potential romance, which most, most authors would do to give us, you know, the, Jim and Pam story or something in the office so we can look forward to the romance and all that. She nips it in the bud right from the beginning and says that August and Kirsten are just friends. So it even just takes out the noise of a romance. And so we can just hang out in this kind of quiet, open area and just kind of let this thing unfold. And we'll have the jumble of the pre-apocalyptic world that was busy, that was disconnected, that was hectic. And then we have the sort of easy, light natural kind of intimacy. I mean, I mean that in a kind of a light way of the post-apocalyptic world. You got to add a profit in there just to make it interesting, but it's really a different taste and something I really, really liked about the book. So would you say, Josh, it was a slow burn for you, this book, not a fast burn? Yeah, slow burn, all the way a slow burn. I mean, not, if you ask me what the book was about, I could tell you the plot about a plague that came and how there is this prophet. But to me, that's just not what the book's about. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so I wasn't turning the pages like just, God, I got to get to the next, you know, battle in the sea. Or I got to get to the next survival thing. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of it's just sort of like reading, um, almost reading a poem the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. She's it was definitely um, more art than anything else like this could be studied at a college right in like a in like a literature class it was, there, I, was it, go ahead maureen i would say it was a slow burn for like the first maybe 35 percent of the book but as soon as like it was like oh the prophet's here and people left because they felt like they were in danger i was after that came i, I couldn't put it down i just i couldn't put it down lou and i were talking as we were reading it and he, we were at the same place on Thursday. He finished it on Friday and I finished it that Saturday. It does accelerate. Yeah. <laughs> As they get closer and closer to like the airport, it just, it did seem to, yeah. the momentum started picking up. For yeah, sure. yeah, totally. Normally, I thought, I find, I, I, I'm fine with a slower, fast burn book. I find fast burn books 
you know, less nutritional value, but sometimes like more fun. And then slow burn books, I think about them when I'm not reading them. You know, like we did Old Man's War. I didn't think about Old Man's War when I wasn't reading it. But this is the kind of book where you're like, it rattles around. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was a slow burn too. But at the beginning, you know, the, like the first three chapters, it like captivated me from the very beginning. And then it kind of slowed down a little bit, but it, it had me in the beginning, you know, with, with uh, Jeevan in him, him trying to uh, resuscitate Arthur, right? It was like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, then I, I was like, okay, this is getting interesting. I have to turn the page, you know? But it didn't, it, it, you know, like it didn't go from event to event to event. It was, it was smooth, you know, it was really, really smooth. And the author did a great job with that. So the part you're kind of describing, Lou, a little bit to me, or at least part of what you were describing, is like when the apocalypse actually has starting to happen. When it's so starting we have to these, happen. we have these, this, this scene for the book where Jeevan is going back and forth with this convenient, this convenient smart, <laughs> like buying the whole. Love that. You love, love that. You know, that. he's like this paranoid <laughs> guy, perfect for the apocalypse. You know, just he's super prepared. Seven you know? shopping carts at the top of a high rise. <laughs> yeah, the doorman's like, hi, how are you? You know? Yeah. So I would have died in the apocalypse because I wouldn't have done that. Like, <laughs> my friend, my doctor friend would have been like, yeah, dude, this is bad. You should get out of the city. I was like, man, that's messed up. Well, this weekend I will. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. out now, it would be like, okay. Well, you you could see Jeevan's character wrestling with hearing his friend talk about the ER, and the author explains to us that this doctor was a serious guy who like never joked around. So I'm trying to think of who could I get the call from that would actually like spur me into action out of my lethargy out or out of my well. Let me check the internet first because Jeevan just like after the second call, Jeevan is like. I'm buying a bunch of groceries and hiding out in my brother's place. And everybody else is looking at him, looking at him like, you know, what? Well, you know, he had that breakdown. He had that, you know, a couple of years earlier, he had that mental breakdown or whatever, you know, whatever he was. So everybody was like, even his girlfriend at the time was like, are you okay? Come over. Come to my apartment. You know, I'll take care of you. You know, she she didn't even believe anything she was saying. She wasn't even watching TV. She doesn't watch the news at night, you know, and uh, which I relate to. I try not to. I do read the news at night sometimes, but, you know, I try not to read the news at night. I try to, you know, kind of wind down, you know. I would not be prepared at all either. At all. You know? The apocalypse like, could happen, but it's got to happen tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So if the apocalypse is going to be Emily St. John Mandel's apocalypse, I kind of want to survive it, you know, because I'm not going to be eaten by vampires later on or robots aren't going to shoot me. I'm actually going to, like, live in this world where, um, you know, unless you come across a prophet, kind of could have kind of a sweet life. I mean, you know, if I get this call and it's like a flu – I, I, I'm going to think back to this book and I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to buy a bunch of groceries. And I'll buy like, you know, food bars so they won't go bad if, you know, turns out there's no apocalypse. And then I'll hide out. Will I survive it? You know, if I'm lucky, we don't know why some people survived the plague and some, some people didn't. 
So if I'm one of the lucky survivors, or, or unlucky, but I'm thinking it's lucky, then I'm not sure I make it because I have really bad teeth. <laughs> I need a dentist. I need a dentist. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna like die from a stupid tooth infection, you know. That so if I can get dumb. some antibiotics and maybe a dentist, I think I'm set. You know. I was at the dentist while I was reading this book, and I like turned to him and I was like, I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, no doubt. Kirsten's Kirsten's missing teeth. Mm-hmm. The main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But, like, I, you die from tooth infection so quickly, that stuff goes right to your brain. That'd be a terrible way to go. It'd be an awful way to go. And you don't have any antibiotics. And, you like, and for me, no antibiotics, no allergy medication, no birth control. I'm a dead woman. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, this book had me thinking a lot of, like where I'm from, Malawi, you know, and how they live in the village. I mean, for years and years, they didn't have running water, electricity, you know. They were introduced to antibiotics, you know, like, you know, 40 years ago, you know. And I just, I I, I wonder how my grandparents and my great-grandparents and how they lived, you know, how they functioned without electricity, without all the or, or the modern day wonders, you know. I mean, it, it just had me thinking that, like, how do those people live? And I'm like, and should it be like criteria at school to learn how to live without electricity? You know, because in, in Africa, I mean, you can just go back to the village. Everybody knows how to live without electricity. Everyone, they can survive. You know, they can survive very, very easily. And they're used to death. You know, death is a normal thing. People die all the time from infections, you know. So it, it just had me thinking of my home a little bit, like, ooh, maybe I should go back <laughs> and learn how to live like that. <laughs> and, you, and I'm sure if you asked, like, your – or if you could ask your great-grandparents, et cetera, you know, has electricity made things better and all that, I, I could only imagine the reaction, like, any – older generation says, you know, I just remember a time. Yeah, they always say, I remember a time. The internet, ah, it was so much better without the internet, you know. Well, my grandma and I used to talk about, she talked about remembering getting electricity installed in her house and remembering getting plumbing installed in her house when she was growing up. It wasn't something that she had and it wasn't something that she had access to. And it like, it changed a whole bunch of stuff for her. So it was neat to have those conversations and how much we take it for granted. And again, you know, when she was young, life expectancy was maybe 60, maybe, you know, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, one of our main characters actually lived to what was Clark 70. So it's, it's in a post-apocalyptic world. That's just unusual. You know, it's unusual because death is a common thing and you die from stuff that we don't normally die from today. They were taught, they were, one of the characters died from an infection, from stepping on a nail. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that, those kind of accidents you're unfortunately more vulnerable to. Let's move on to this different storylines. You know, each chapter is from the perspective 
of one of the characters. I found myself more interested in some of the characters' storylines than others. I'll start off with Arthur. I know he's like super central. He's like the hub in the in the wheel. Every time I got to one of his sections, I was kind of like, I kind of don't like this guy. And he's not in the post-apocalyptic world, which is the more interesting of the two worlds to me. And I'm kind of looking forward to the next chapter when he's not the, the main guy. And on the other hand, I really liked Kirsten's chapters and what little bit we, we get Jeevan, a complex character there. And even Clark Clark has some of my favorite chapters in the books, but I wouldn't say that for all of his chapters. But anyway, sorry, Arthur. <laughs> I just found you the least interesting. I really, I really wanted, I was like, it was, Arthur's story was really sad to me because I really was pulling for him, you know, like he's one of those people that is just, he's so lost and you, he's just, he's so self-absorbed that it's like, you really want him to be happy because, but he just, he only likes the excitement. You know, he just lives for the excitement and it's like, no, you could have so many good things if you just like would get involved in people's lives, <laughs> you know, and like at the end, he was really, I don't know if it was guilt, you know, that as I was reading the end of his story, he was, he was looking to make some changes, but again, I don't know if they were going to be permanent changes, you know, he's always looking to make changes. He's always looking for a deeper connection, but, um, I just, I felt so bad for him. I felt so, so bad for him. He's immature. He's yeah. So, he's so immature. Yeah. So, Maureen, who who was your favorite storyline? Clark. I really, I really liked Clark. I liked him as a character. I liked his character progression. He was just interesting. the the scene The scene that really hooked me on him was the dinner party with Miranda, and I thought that this character he handled that conversation in such a classy way. You know, he's not. He's recognizing that his friend is kind of, you know, being a dick. <laughs> but at the same time, he's not condemning his friend for it. He understands that his friend is doing the best he can, you know. And so, he, you know, he's approaching Miranda and he's like, yep, what's going on right now is kind of shitty. And I'm sorry about that, you know. Like, I, like, I, I, uh, I wanted to jump in on that, Maureen. I, I have, like, kind of noted my favorite sections of the of the novel and I have three favorites but the first one I wrote down was I wrote the entire dinner party scene every yeah. bit of it when she goes outside to smoke yep when she has her discovery about what's going on with Elizabeth Colton yep with the whole thing and I have got to believe that the author has been through some shit right like you know, has, has been more than one of those roles herself, you know, or just seen it so intimately to be able to capture that scene. That was, I thought, peak, peak, excellent scene. It was beautiful writing. It was yeah. just beautiful writing. Well, one of the other things I liked about Arthur, um, or Clark was that like, we actually got to watch him grow old and, you know, we kind of talked about in the last podcast about how afraid I am of that. And it was really nice to get this perspective on what it means to grow old. And it was, it was 
I really liked Clark at the end. So, like, one of the things when Kirsten finally got to this the airport, the first thing he did, he could have made that connection with her. You know, he could have ended the isolation of the two characters because they had the connection, too. She had the paperweight. You know, he had he knew who she was from the newspapers. So he could have reached out to her. But instead, what he did, the first thing he did was took her to go see something that she was deeply interested in. You know, and that's how he made the connection with her, not over a false connection from the past, but here's an interest and here's something that I can share with you that you will love and brighten your future. And I just thought it was one of the most wonderful, loving examples that we had through the entire book of like a really solid way to treat people. It it really, I just loved that character. And I loved the part where she was writing about him in the museum where he would like fall asleep and then wake up and fall asleep and wake up. And I was like, you know what? I think, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. I think I could get old that way. I'm not even old enough doing that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but were there any, were there any, uh, storylines that were alluded to or that she, any pieces of this book that you were wishing, Oh, I wish I got to have that or see that. I had, I had one. Two, and I'll do one that I think is more of a throwaway. And I like we talk about slow burn, fast burn. I'm all about a nice slow burn story. the The part that is built for fast burn is the panic around the flag, right? You had Jivon leaving Toronto. You had, you know, her Kirsten and her brother leaving Toronto. But I, you know, that's that's a story. That's a that's a summer blockbuster movie on its own, right? That's World War Z without the zombies, right? So I can always do more of that, but that's not what this novel was about, right? So I, that's, I'm going to go, that is a throwaway. What I think, and I've never been a graphic novel guy, right? I read everything on a Kindle and I just don't think it would work as well. But I, I would like to do the Dr. Levin story for real, you know, and see what that's all about. Because that was just as creative and zany as anything in, in, at all. You'd like to read the comic books. I would like to read the comic books. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. For sure. I mean, we're, we're just teased about them throughout the whole book, but we don't really know. We're just, the whole, it's just like a teaser throughout. And I was mm-hmm. hoping to flip the page and be like, you know, see the cover at least of the Station Eleven story. So I would definitely, if those comic books came out, I would go to my local library and check them out. <laughs> you, you can tell that she's a sci-fi, you know, comic fan for sure, you know. And and she had a uh, a little uh, shout out to the passage. Did you guys notice that? Yes, yes, I did. She had a little shout out to the passage. Yeah, I was she like, did. Whoa. It was um, Elizabeth Colton who had read yeah. the passage and referenced it uh, in the airport when everybody was just during the plague basically was figuring out that something wrong was happening and that potentially a plague had happened. She referenced the passage. Yeah. Yeah. Can I give you guys another favorite scene? Yeah. The death plane. Oh, yes. So good. It's still sitting there. It's still sitting there 20 years later and they haven't opened it. No. It's just like a reminder or something, you know? Yeah. 
And there's no planes in the sky. It's again, we're back to quiet and stillness. There's just none of that noise up in the sky. There's this quiet, silent, still plane. Well, and the immense sacrifice that everyone on the that the immense sacrifice that happened because of that plane. Yes, yeah, some know? decision maker. Yes, and somebody said, "No, you're not getting off the plane." You know, and like, and everyone in that plane, you know, they suffered and you know, they died. And like, there was somebody there that was like, there or a crew of people probably that were like, no, you can't get off the plane. And somebody is panicking and coughing and feverish. And they're saying, no, I'm not sick. I just need to get out there. You know, that just an immense, immense. That was incredible. Their, their sacrifice created a connection. Yeah. That still yeah, lasts if, 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. If if they do this movie or, you know, Netflix series or whatever, they'll probably have people banging on the windows oh. and filming. But they shouldn't. It should be a silent plane lands. People are watching it. It doesn't come to the gate. It stops. It goes dark. And the lights never come back on. Yeah. And it just sits there like, like something scary. Yeah. Right. Well, and what would be amazing is if it is if it were the plane lands and everybody goes to the glass windows to look at the tarmac and the whole airport is waiting for people to come out and waiting for the doors to open and, and the do. silence descends and the and the sun sets and hours later they're still standing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You guys should direct this. <laughs> um, I, the, 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 I wanted to add one story, one storyline that Kirsten doesn't want to know, but I was wondering if there's a way to work it into the story without sort of ruining or without disrespecting her, the fact that she doesn't want to know about her lost year with her brother. And we know it's traumatic, but I, I just, I just kept thinking, is there a way to kind of work it in almost like maybe one of the theater people or something? actually kind of know what happened but never tells anyone and they just live with it to, to spare her the truth of what happened or something I'm like that I'm you know? glad I'm glad she didn't kind of go into it because she was a child you know and I always have problems with um, traumatic experiences with children you know what I mean and and I'm kind of glad I'm glad that I respect her for not going there you know and seeing what children go through in that time period, you know what I mean? In this world where, you know, people are dead, you know, can you imagine? We, we assume the worst for her trauma. Yeah. I do. So mm-hmm. I don't, the, and the, the details would be just, I don't know, uh, unnecessary in, in a way. Yes. I don't well, think I've added it, but there can be other reasons for trauma. And the worst is different for each of us. You know, my worst is not going to be the same as your worst. She, yes. she might have had to done, do some horrible things to survive, like kill some other people or something, you know, and, and maybe that's why she's, she's – but we don't know. So I don't, I don't know. Just playing around with the idea of that that is a blank part of the story, and I don't, I don't know if it, it should be known. And, and I was thinking one way it could be known is if like one of her theater troupe people, maybe who took her in, kind of saw her or got a clue or – found something and he he or she kind of lives with that by themselves just an idea but i, I think it's great the way it, is. it i see the thing is i think it's left that way for a purpose because like it, it's it, it, 
everybody's worst is different, you know, and by leaving it out, we get to, we get to say, okay, what would the, what would the absolute dregs of humanity do? And like, what do, what would I need to do to not become that person? Do you know what I mean? And like the giving, you know, giving a face to the monster always makes the monster less scary. So I like, I think it's kind of important that like there isn't an answer as to what happened in that year. Like it's left for us to imagine because we think that we know the worst in people and it always like, it usually ends up not, my fears are usually not as bad as they end up being, you know? So on that note, and I agree with you about the monster thing, another great scene was the tension on the road as people are disappearing. It, was, it reminded me of Lost with the others, where people just went missing. But I thought that was well, really, really good. And they didn't put a face on the bad guy, even though you no. knew who it was for a while. But they didn't show the scenes. They just were people missing. So great job there. I, I had two favorite scenes that were um, slow burn scenes. I, I would describe them as. One was when Kirsten and August find the untouched home. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, they go in there. The dust is thick. They're kind of like, she tries, she tries light switches, you know, just out of habit. And August says his prayer over the, um, apparent, you know, remains of someone who is still in the house. And, just that whole scene, you could just imagine how new all this old stuff was to them. And, you know, of course, they came away with some good loot as well. My other favorite scene was Clark's interview with Dahlia about the sleepwalkers. You, you know, Emily St. John Mandel grew up on this little island with a thousand people, and now she lives in New York City. And I'm just wondering if she's looking around New York City and seeing sleepwalkers. Yeah. So I'm also watching The Office for the first time, and it's interesting. It was interesting reading this book and watching The Office at the same time because she's talking about the sleepwalkers, but at the same time I'm watching The Office and there is so much joy in the Jim and Dwight pranks, you know? <laughs> like, and I, are we really sleepwalking? Like I work in an office job and I absolutely love it. You know, and I love it, but me, I love it because of the people that I work with. And I think to a certain extent, there is always that, that thing where you turn around and you're like, Oh my gosh, how did I get here? And I haven't done anything with my life. <laughs> you know, I did like the sleepwalkers thing, but it was, it was weird reading that and like having, having it demonstrated in a different way in a different medium at the same time. Yeah, it's um it it was a sort of an indictment of you know of of everyone in some ways, but a little more spe- specifically the example in the book was of a guy who just worked so much uh and was so busy 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 that he never really was experiencing any joy. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we return, we'll do Hollywood. This episode is brought to you by the Flux Family Scholarship Fund. The Flux Family Scholarship Fund is dedicated to providing educational, administrative, programmatic, and strategic support to students with significant financial aid needs by awarding scholarships 
for time travel education experience. For many years, educational oriented time travel was reserved only for the wealthy. If you went to an Ivy League school or your parents could afford it, you might be able to enjoy a semester in ancient Mesopotamia. But the rest of us, well, we were stuck with history books. Let's face it, if you're going to enhance your education by traveling back in time, you're going to need money, lots of it. For most students, time travel education experiences have just been out of reach. Each year, the Flux Family Scholarship Fund provides a record number of scholarships for time travel to qualifying students. Along with an incredible summer or semester back in time, qualifying students can also apply for diversity scholarships, financial needs-based scholarships, and a series of grants. As one of the largest time travel study program providers in the world, the Flux Family Scholarship Fund is an incredible resource for students looking to study in the distant past without going into debt. Do you study linguistics or religion? Would it enrich your education to learn ancient Hebrew directly from a rabbi living in the antediluvian kingdom of Judah? To deepen your environmental studies, would you like to experience rapid climate change at the end of the Pleistocene epoch, 11,700 years ago, and the impact it had on the evolution of Homo sapiens? Perhaps you want to enrich your women's studies courses by spending time with the famed Amazons, the world's first full-time all-female combat fighting force. The Flux Family Scholarship Fund includes a number of different grants and funding opportunities, but they all have one thing in common, creating a bridge to the past through time travel. Each year, the Flux Family Scholarship Fund provides a million dollars in scholarships to undergraduate students facing financial hardship. If you are ready to enrich your education through time travel experiences, complete the application found at www.booksfromearth.com backslash Flux Fund. That's all one word, Flux Fund. Start prepping your personal essay. Make sure your FAFSA is up to date. Get your transcripts printed and contact your references. Now you can qualify for time travel scholarship regardless of your financial situation. Who knows? Maybe we'll even read your personal essay on the pod. Don't let financial hardship stop you from getting the time traveling educational experience you deserve. Tell them Books from Earth sent you. Now, back to the pod. So let's move on to casting. You were all, we've all been hired by whoever's going to eventually make this into a movie or a TV show. And we're doing casting calls. Maureen, since you like Clark Thompson so much, why don't we start with him? Oh, I want to start with Arthur because I have a, I have a one that I think will make you laugh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do Arthur. <laughs> so I was thinking we need somebody who can do Shakespeare that is pretty good looking and is the right age for the part. And I was thinking Sean Bean because, of course, he dies and everything. <laughs> who, who are you thinking? Sean Bean. <laughs> Ned Stark from Game of Thrones. No um, Yeah, he dies in everything. <laughs> you know, so I right. that would be funny. As, but, as soon um, as you see him in the TV show, if you haven't read the book, you're like, oh, I guess that character dies. Right. Oh, oh, Sean Bean's here. Okay, we know who dies. <laughs> yeah, he's like a character actor who, who you just know, like, don't get attached. <laughs> I, I have a pretty good one too for Arthur Lander. I feel for so before we get into it, I feel really good about 
four of the characters, and I feel so good about one of them. And I feel, and this is one of my four, but it's not the one I feel so good about, but it's one I feel pretty good about. James Spader. He can do anything as an actor. He can do, he's subtle, and I think he could shift from being himself to putting on a show. Right? He could do the dinner party. He could do the, the dinner with Clark. He could do that, those tender moments with Kirsten. He could do King Lear, you know, and he's, he's, um, you know, like you can remember him from like, you know, the eighties movies when he was like the, you know, one of the young, good looking dudes. But, you know, now he's got a shaved head, you know, and he's lost his hair. And he's not pitching at a hundred anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that he sounds good. Sounds good too. I I'm calling in our uh, Sir Mark Rylance. He played exactly. James Halliday in Ready Player One. Oh, oh. read the book. Haven't seen the movie. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, uh-huh. he he actually got his start in Shakespeare theater, and he's won Academy Awards. Blah blah blah. He also has that kind of face that can be kind of tragic and sad, or it can be happy. And uh, so I was just I was thinking he might be good. I like your guys' casting calls as well. I casted Michael C. Hall, um, Six Feet Under, Dexter, you know, uh, and because, you know, Arthur is, you know, he's like, um, in, in Michael C. Hall, I think he's like type of actor too. I think he's a great actor. He can play any role, you know, he can definitely do Shakespeare. He has that look to me, you know what I mean? And that feel of, you know, Arthur a little bit, you know, like this is a guy He's not quite an A-list, but he's there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he's you, can, you can't say he's a B-lister, you know, because he's been in so many things. But you can't say, you know, you, you know, not quite sure, you know. So I would put him. I just like him a lot. Six feet under Dexter too. I will take any of those guys, any of them. They're all great. Yeah. So Jack, who is the character that you feel like you got a, a real ringer for? That I got it. That I really nailed it. Yeah. Elizabeth Colton. Who you got? Taylor Swift. Really? Oh. <laughs> okay. I think I I think it's it, dude. Okay. I think and you're onto something there. I'm sure she can act, right? It would give her that opportunity that to not be, you know, the Taylor Swift everyone knows. So she could she could you know, strike a, a new chord if she wanted. But I pictured Elizabeth Colton being very thin. You could attribute whatever traits you want to her. And I think Taylor Swift could do that. And, and I don't, I, I don't know much about Taylor Swift. So if she listens to our pod, all apologies, <laughs> but I picture Elizabeth Colton being kind of vacuous and I think Taylor Swift could play that role so well. And I could see her tumbling, you know, because she's always, you don't see photos or images of her that aren't perfect, right? Just like Elizabeth Colton. But then during the fall, you could see her tumble. And I just think, I think it would be, uh, I think she'd be, I, think to, I could not, I, I feel so good about that one. But anyways, let's see if you guys can change my mind. I would have picked Kirsten Dunst because she, did you see Bring It On? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, 
Guys, I know it doesn't sound like a quality movie, but it is, as you be quiet, Jason, it is actually a quality movie. It is really good. Bring it on. Kirsten Dunst and Elijah Dushku. Eliza Dushku. It is really good. But she, so she's got that, like, she can do the sweet and innocent thing, but she can also, I mean, she was doing an interview with a vampire at, how old was she, 11? So she can also play completely crazy pants. <laughs> so I was all for Kirsten Dunst, because she is. She's beautiful. She's like, she just looks perfect and sweet and all of that. But then you also have this other side of her that is really dark, really crazy. I am like, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of hers. If you ever need, yeah, if you ever need to fold some laundry, throw on, bring it on. That's what happened to me. And I was like, why is this movie so good? (laughs) Uh, Lou, Lou, who do you have? I got one on a writer. She, she is just, you know, she's, you know, She's had a lot of problems, you know. Um, so I got I got her as more of a Miranda Carroll. I almost put her name out there for Miranda Carroll, but really, yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I got her. She could be a Miranda, um, but I got her Elizabeth because you know she's you know you know she's a little older, so and she can she can be young if she wanted to. You know, you can dress her up to be young. You know, and she's thin. She's she, I think she's gorgeous, you know, and she has that air about her that you would think that Elizabeth Colton has, you know, throughout the whole book. You know, she has this air about her, you know, and then towards the end, you know, she you can tell she's just troubled, you know, and I don't know if you guys saw uh, Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. I thought she, she was, I mean, just she's great. The first season, she's just so anguished, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, I'm, I'm, and, and it's like you, you see the anguish in her, and you can tell that Elizabeth, Elizabeth Colton is completely anguished throughout the whole book. She's a troubled woman, you so, know. So we got we got a lot of we got a lot of good A list people there. Taylor Swift was actually in a post apocalyptic movie called The Giver, uh, an adaptation of another book. Oh. Yeah. So, so here was my hang up on this character. She is described. The Elizabeth Colton is described as so stunningly beautiful that when you see her, you think of nothing else. To me, I got I got kind of hung up on well, who is so amazingly good looking that I get hung up on it. And unfortunately, I couldn't think of someone that was that so stunning, beautiful, and had the acting that I wanted the person to have. Lou, Lou had Michael C. Hall for him. <laughs> Well, we're, we're, unfortunately, I don't think Michael C. Hall can play Elizabeth Colton, so oh, I got to dial that back. So I really struggled <laughs> with Elizabeth Colton. I like I like your your all's ideas. I was thinking maybe Eva Green. I was also thinking Kirsten Dunst. But anyway, got a lot to choose from there. We'll just have to cast them, call them all into our casting, and see who wins. <laughs> okay, we've done Arthur. We've done Elizabeth. How about let's go to Clark now. Clark Thompson. I, I've got Ewan McGregor. I feel like Ewan can kind of play like this ordinary person, but also kind of play a really classy, considerate person as well. Kind of more of a gentle soul. Good it's one. not about, it's not about his physique, you know. Good one. I got, I got one. I feel good about Ralph, Ralph Fiennes. He was in my contentions for Arthur, actually. Yeah. 
I actually, I picked Willie Garson, who played Stanford Blatch on Sex and the City, because it's basically the same character. <laughs> so we already know that he's successful because he played Stanford Blatch in Sex and the City. <laughs> so right. he, he also has, he has that kindness and that air of caring about him, but at the same time, he's going to call you on your bullshit. Like, that's what I really like about that character. I have um, kind of a strange pick, you know, because Clark is a gay guy, you know, but he's, you know, he's English and he's really tall. And I I have Christopher Hivju. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He He's the redhead in Game of Thrones. The big dude. The yeah. Which the dude one? from the north of the wall? The, yeah, the Druf, yeah, north of the wall. Oh, the one who likes Brienne? Yes. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's a big guy, you know what I mean? <gasps> but I, but he's also a little soft, and I think he's a great actor, and he can play Clark because he's a big guy. That's the funnest choice I've heard. <laughs> That's a fun choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to see him in more things. So, yeah, I'm on and that. I, I'm on that. On that ball. <laughs> I think you'd be a great gay character. Who's next, Josh? Miranda. I, this is another one I feel really good about. Okay. Who do you got? Juliette Lewis. So, Natural Born Killers. I think she was in the first X-Men movie. She starts... She, so, this person's got to be doing graphic novels, right? So, they've got to be artsy-fartsy. Um, but they've also got to be able to put on, like, you know, heels and a pencil skirt and a suit for work. And, and then they unfortunately have to die on the beach. And I think she could do it all. I, I, I just, I like anything she does pretty much. So I, I really like that. I kind of like your pick more than mine, but I'll go ahead and throw Ellen Page into the mix. She kind of, Ellen Page is kind of, I think, good at playing that sort of person who's, that you know, character who's okay being slightly in the background of whatever's happening. And, you know, I could see her going the artsy way of a comic book and wanting to escape into her world and things like that. But your your choice is more interesting, Jack. So I picked Gabriel Union um, because Miranda's the only character that we actually get to see really grow from a girl to a woman. And Gabriel Union... Um, is 40 years old, but she still looks 17 in certain outfits. So she, I think that she could play the age range. You would be able to keep the same character, but also she's got a wonderful vulnerability about her. It's in certain parts. So she could do that, but still maintain like that, that aura of strength that Miranda has. And the, the thing that as I was reading through the books, I wasn't sure if Miranda was putting on a show or if she was genuinely had that feeling of like, I have no regrets. And I would like to see her take on that specific character trait. Mm. That's deep. That's going to take some acting talent. I have, I, I have Natalie Dyer again from Stranger Things. She's the, you know, uh, she's the blonde. She's a little young, but I think she's, um, you know, she can she can play somebody in her twenties, and you can make her look a little older. And I just like her in Stranger Things because she's you know she's a little artsy and she's cute and and I think she could do it. You know, uh, she she has this angst about her. You know, 
through, you know, in, in Stranger Things, and and Miranda's the same way. You know, what I mean, she's just angsty. You know, going from like bad relationship to another bad relationship. You know, so I think she could do it. All right, another a lot of great choices. Let's move on. Kirsten Raymond. So the balance of mine, I feel like, are good ideas, but I could be convinced for someone else. Like the ones I've given you so far, Ralph Fiennes or Fiennes, Juliette Lewis, Taylor Swift, James Spader. feel really good about those. No one can convince me otherwise. And now we're getting into the ones where I can, can be convinced otherwise. But I've got Millie Bobby Brown. Third shout out to Stranger Things. She's, <laughs> she's number 11. Because I'm picturing you can make her look like a baby, right? And she is a baby, but you could also, you know, make her look a little older, a little bedraggled with some missing teeth. And, and you know, she's got the chops for, for underacting. And I think that this character is underacted. She also has to happens to have a British accent in real life. So that means she can do Shakespeare, right? Yeah. <laughs> for sure. It's a good call. I, I, I really struggle with this one. The best I could do is uh, Maisie Williams, Arya Stark. That's what I had. Oh, another good one. I had Josh. I had picked the same thing. Damn. Well, she's already got two votes in the casting call. Yeah. But maybe we'll be <laughs> persuaded. I don't know. So I picked Aubrey, Prop, Aubrey Plaza from Parks and Rec um, because I think she has the body type of – somebody who's going to kick some ass, but she also, I mean, first and foremost, she looks good without makeup. And that can be said for both of the other women that you guys have said. And it's hard, it's hard to do that because this isn't going to be, if we're casting this, we're going to have to do no makeup. She's got a certain hardness to her, but she also might be able to bring some humor to the role, which is because uh, the, the whole book was kind of dark for me. And I think putting somebody who can, who has that dry sense of that dry sense of humor and that kind of like deadpan delivery, you might be able to get a couple laughs out of it. Because I think one of the important things when you're when you're doing something that's so dark, you need to have moments of uproarious humor and vice versa. If you're doing something that's very very humorous, you need to have a tragic moment in order to like really make it good. Hmm, I like it. I feel like Audrey also does a good job of like being a part of a crew. Oh yeah. 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 You know, like in Parks and Rec, she's kind of part of that zany <laughs> Parks and Rec office. And mm-hmm. she, she's her own person, but she's clearly also one of the crew. Yeah. But any, any, anything that anybody's thrown out, I'm happy with so far. These are all good casting choices. Well, we haven't talked about Jeevan and we haven't talked about the prophet. Tyler Leander. Anybody want to throw out some names for that? For them? All right. I'll give you mine. The last name, Jeevan, forgive my pronunciation, Shadari, is I looked up the origin of the name. It's Indian, Bangladesh. I wanted to at least have the right. I didn't want to be like, for those of you listening to the podcast, I'm a white dude from Connecticut. And I. <laughs> didn't want to get this wrong. So then I backed into where, you know, who are the actors that I know with a similar, that, that could play that role accurately. Like I didn't want to like be off on that and disrespect anyone. And I came up with someone, I think it's pretty good. Dev Patel 
who play who was the main character from Slumdog Millionaire. I had him. Oh, we're on to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he he can play. I think he can almost do anything. And so I think he could play a Ian, you know, uh, a journalist guy because he actually does play a journalist guy. And um, uh, it was that uh, HBO or Showtime, the newsroom uh, show. And then yeah, I think he could easily transition to somebody who did EMT type work as well. And yep. Wow, you guys put some thought into this because I didn't even research the name. Neither did I, Lou. You and me. Oh are my sure. God! You know, and I just looked it up, and it's like it is a, a, a South Asian name. You know. What do you, do you have like someone who's Spanish, Lou? No, I have a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'm a white dude. I, you know, and I, I have David Harbor from um, Stranger Things. He's the cop. I love him. Mm. You know, because you know, Jeevan's kind of like a vagabond. You know, he's like. Lost, he's a wanderer, he has no idea what he's doing, and uh, and, and so is um, David Harbour's car- character in Stranger Things. He's like, you know, stuck in this little town, <laughs> he has no idea what he's doing, you know? A good, good actor. But now that I know that it's, you know, South Asian, it's a South Asian name. Wow. Yeah, mine's moved guessed. too. I never guessed. Well, congratulations, Dev. You got the part. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to add, I I picked Jonas Hill. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Did you guys watch Maniac on Netflix? No, not yet. No. He I actually, he did an exceptional job in that, I thought. He's got a really, he's got a certain softness about him in the indecis- indecision of his character in the beginning, but then when he gets to his purpose at the end, like, I thought Jonas Hill would do a good job at that. Great actor. Really? So did anybody have a ringer for Tyler Leander? I didn't. I, I struggled with this one. I, got one. Like, I don't know. What do you got? Uh, I got one. You know, I can be convinced. Go ahead, Lou. You know, he is a hated character for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Who else is more hated than King Joffrey? Jack oh. oh, good job. Uh, I do have to criticize you pulling all of your characters from Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. I, I, it's the medieval I'm setting. The show again. I'm, it's the medieval know. setting. They're both yes. in a you know, pre-industrial world. We've seen these characters in this setting. Yes. I was also constantly going back to Game, and Thro- Game of Thrones. Me too. Me too. So, just, I get it. Alright. I'll defer to the group and, and Josh gets Lou and Lou, good choice. I don't know how to pronounce his first name, so I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's either Killian Murphy or Cillian Murphy. You guys ever seen Peaky Blinders on Netflix? Yeah. He's the main character. He's got his head shaved on the side. He's got, like, kind of big Great lips, pick. very, very smooth skin. I googled creepy actors on and who are also good-looking, and it gave me, like, a huge list, by the way. And... He he definitely they had the whole creepy vibe for every person like they caught the picture of them that made them look the scariest and he he definitely had the scre- the, the scary thing going on. I'm really mad because this person I picked Zach Efron and like three days later they were like oh Zach Efron is playing Ted Bundy and I was like God damn it somebody figured out that he's creepier earlier than I did. <laughs> You may not want to do two creepy roles back to back. I know. And I was just like, who is really good looking, but also can be super creepy? And I was like, Zach Efron. 
So that's all right. I'm glad you guys bailed me out because I just had no one for this. But, <laughs> okay, now I got some people. One last thing: was there anything about this post-apocalyptic world that you were like, "Oh, I wish I had that right now. I want that." No. The silence. No. I want the quiet. <laughs> I want to go to bed at sundown <laughs> and get, come up at sunup. Yeah. Come to Malawi. I take yeah? you to Malawi. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I actually, they go to they go to bed at sundown. Easy. I could do the quiet and the close connections that are possible, but you can get close connections without. of the world dying. So, I'm going to say no. And it's, for me, it's just driven by, by my kids and my wife. And if I survived, odds are that means they didn't. And neither did my parents and my siblings and my nieces and nephews. So I'm going to go with no. Okay, okay, you're kind of ruining it for me. Because there's two things that I'd really like to have. <laughs> okay, so. All right. In this world, there's, I, I think I love the idea of outdoor pop-up theater. Like, I'd just be, like, hanging out in my town, and then this, like, super talented group comes through and puts on a show for me just for free, just for fun, just because it gives them their lives meaning. I would love that. That sounds great. The Traveling Symphony. Hopefully they would remind me of my dead wife and kids. Um, the other thing, just I love the idea of living in an airport. I don't know what. I, don't oh. I, I mean, I hate me getting too. stuck in an airport and layovering oh, there. But I just kept thinking of these. I just envy these people living in the airport. I have no idea why. I know it's weird, but I was the whole throughout the novel. I was like, I want to be at the airport. So those are my two favorite post-apocalyptic elements, except for the eating deer meat every day. <laughs> maybe way to cook medicine. I would really like, um, I really liked the stars. You know, I've, I've got, I've been lucky enough to be able to see the Milky Way and, ah, man, I miss the stars. I miss the stars. It would be nice to be able to walk outside and see the stars at night. Blue, can you, can you fix that by going to Malawi? Yes. We'll go. Easily. There you go. We'll go visit your fam. It's not post, post apocalyptic. Sorry. I have a hard time saying that. You know, there are people everywhere, but you can see the you can see the Milky Way. It's uh, mm, so there we go. All right, anybody want to read a favorite quote? I have like several, so I kind of want to go last because you're probably going to read some of mine. I have one, and I go thought this was this was this was awesome. It's the dinner scene, which was I guess everybody's favorite scene, and it's, it goes, Ah, Tesh says. Very admirable of you. It reminds me of a documentary I saw last month, a little Czech film about an outsider artist who refused to show her work during her lifetime. She lived in Praha. And, oh, Clark says, I believe when you're speaking English, you you are allowed to refer it as Prague. Tesh appears to, to have lost the power of speech. <laughs> I just, I, I thought that was, that was, you know, which... You know, like you said, Clark. You love you love Clark so much. That was Clark. You know, she just put her in her place because I couldn't stand Tesh. You know, so she was pretentious and praha. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Who else? I got one, but it, well, it's real short. So, and this is when 
the airplane is taking off again a couple days after the plague has set in, and the sound of the engines was startling after these days of silence. There was a long period where nothing happened. The engines roaring before the plane worked its way out of the line of parked aircraft with a series of delicate lurching turns. It left a gap between the Cathay Pacific and Lufthansa jets and made a slow curve to the runway. Someone, impossible to see who at this distance, was waving in one of the windows. A few people waved back. It's a good one. Jack? So, in this book, all a book about trying to belong, wanting to connect, um, it, it's the rare post-apocalyptic piece that has hope scattered throughout and ends on a note of hope. So we've got Arthur and Miranda start on an island, Dr. Eleven on, on an island, on a moon full of islands, Miranda dying by the sea, looking out at the boat, which looked like islands to her. A view from the airplane, which are islands of light surrounded by darkness, and the way people live in the post-apocalyptic, the post-fall world, which is just little clusters of, of, of people. That when the fall happened, they stopped moving. And if the island is a metaphor for isolation in the end, the last paragraph of the book is the counterpoint to that. Clark looks up at the evening activity on the tarmac, at the planes that have been grounded for 20 years, the reflection of his candle flickering in the glass. He had no expectation of seeing an airplane rise again in his lifetime, but is it possible that somewhere, there are ships setting out. If there are, again, towns with streetlights, if there are symphonies in newspapers, then what else might this awakening world contain? Perhaps vessels are setting out even now, traveling toward or away from him, steered by sailors armed with maps and knowledge of the stars, driven by need, or perhaps simply by curiosity. Whatever became of the countries on the other side? If nothing else, it's pleasant to consider the possibility he likes the thought of ships moving over the water towards another world just out of sight. It's one of my favorites, too. What a great way to end a great book. Definitely. Well, I had – that was one of mine that I was going to do. This, too, is also a pivotal moment in the book. It's a physiological response to danger, Dieter told her when Kirsten mentioned the soundlessness of those seconds, the way time stretched and expanded. This seemed a reasonable enough explanation, but there was nothing in her memories to account for how calm she was afterward when she pulled her knife from the man's throat and cleaned it. And this was why she stopped trying to remember her lost year on the road. The 13 unremembered months between leaving Toronto with her brother and arriving in the town in Ohio where they stayed until he died and she left with the symphony. Whatever that year on the road contained, she realized it was nothing she wanted to know about. Episode 2 featuring Station Eleven by Emily St. John Medell has come to an end. We'd like to thank Flux Family Scholarship, whose generous funding made this episode possible. Flux Family Scholarship. Time travel for the underprivileged. You can find more information about the Flux Family Scholarship at booksfromearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate us, or visit our website, booksfromearth.com. Earth makes great books. Come relive them with us. So long, and I'll tell next time 
all you Earthlings. This is Josh, Maureen, Jack, and Lou, signing off. Alright, so am I coming through on my headset microphone or on my laptop microphone? Uh, right now, you are not coming through the way that you were 10 seconds ago. Oh, how about right now? That's much better. Okay. Sound good? Because all, all I did was put my hands around the microphone. I didn't actually do anything different. Okay. That. It sounds super tinny. Does it sound like that when I'm doing that now? Yes, it does. Okay. Is this that because is... you're putting your hands around the microphone? Yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> I can't. Do we, all, do we all sound like we're uh, using Star Wars comms? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we're kids walkie-talkies. Uh. I need you to turn off the trash compactor. <laughs> <laughs> turn it off.